Today is Thursday, February 22nd, and this is the Cato Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Anastasia Glova. For today's podcast, I'm on the phone with Thomas Dichter, author of the newly released Cato study, A Second Look at Microfinance, the Sequence of Growth and Credit in Economic History. Tom has worked in international development in a variety of institutions, including the World Bank, the United Nations Development Program, and the Peace Corps. His experiences lead him to conclude that microfinance isn't everything that Nobel laureate and founder of Grameen Bank, Mohamed Yunus, imagines it to be. Why the pessimistic outlook on the benefits of microfinance? Well, first of all, we're really short on solid evidence. The evidence that we have the most of is anecdotal and lots of stories and lots of pictures. We don't have serious, rigorous impact analysis data. We don't have long-term follow-up data on what happens to the people who take microcredit loans. We are short on sustainability. There are thousands and thousands of MFIs, microfinance institutions, in existence, and an amazingly small percentage of those thousands are financially sustainable. We're perhaps talking about a handful or two handsful of institutions that really cover their costs and the costs of their funds. And I guess the last reason that I have a pessimistic outlook is that I've seen a growing amount of hype around this field, which is bringing in newer and newer and more and more players, more and more outside interest, more and more public interest, more and more journalistic interest. This is pushing the expectations of microcredit in particular. And I think the potential for causing some damage is growing. How do you then explain the success of Grameen Bank in particular and similar initiatives by Citigroup and just any number of MFIs? Well, obviously the question here is how do you define success? To me, success is quite simple. If microfinance is making a significant difference in reducing poverty, that's what I would call success. We don't have any data that suggests that that's what's happening. What we have is data that says that Grameen Bank has reached millions of poor clients. We have data showing that there are some consumption smoothing effects, that people, particularly the women who receive Grameen Bank loans, do feel empowered. Those are all good things. But one has to ask the tougher question, which is what difference does it make in the long run in terms of poverty? And if you look at Bangladesh today, while it's made some tiny progress in terms of reducing poverty, roughly 1% drop per year since the mid to late 90s, it is still one of the poorest countries in the world. It ranks 139 out of 177 countries in terms of the UN's Human Development Index. Over 80% of the population lives under $2 a day. 40% of the population are considered to live in severe deprivation, and inequality has increased. This is a country with lots of significant problems that are not and cannot be solved by microfinance. So when you say Grameen Bank is a success, to me it is not. It's a success in applying a very nice Band-Aid to the problems of the poor but it is not a success in creating economic development that would really bring the poor permanently out of poverty. It seems that your skepticism about microfinance really goes against the grain of Hernando de Soto's conclusions about the latent power of debt capital and the need to mobilize it. 
I don't agree. I don't think that's the case. I think DeSoto's central issue isn't that he's talking about the need for credit. It's that he's talking about the need for institutions and laws and systems that will release the power of debt capital. He's not really saying anything about the power of debt capital as being solvable by applications of more credit. I think he's talking about things like property rights and legal and judicial systems that function properly so that people can count on having deeds that are meaningful and therefore will invest in that property. That's what I think he means by releasing the power of capital. Well, without credit to mobilize property rights and start businesses, then how do the poor start businesses at all? The gist of the article that I just recently published is that historically, and this goes back to the beginning of the records that we have, historically, people start businesses or people start small businesses, let's put it that way, using informal sources of finance. For the most part, their own savings or borrowing from acquaintances and friends and family. That is still the way that most small businesses are started today in both the developed and the developing countries. And the other thing that I would like to add here is the expectation that somehow the poor are different kinds of people than we are. They're not. They are no more prone to be born entrepreneurial than you and I are. Entrepreneurs are not the majority of the population in the world. Entrepreneurs are a special kind of people, and most people basically don't have the energy, the gumption, the risk-taking capacity, the ability to deal with constant failure to become entrepreneurs. Most of us prefer to work for wages, and we don't want to become entrepreneurs because I think intuitively most of us realize how hard it is. So an entrepreneur is a special kind of person, and they just don't grow on trees. So where does the microcredit, once it's lent out, where does it all go? Well, okay, this is the kind of question we need better answers to. I'd like to see, let's do some dreaming here, I'd like to see 1,500 graduate students in sociology and anthropology go out to 50 or 60 microcredit sites around the world and live in villages and rural areas and urban marketplaces for 18 months or 24 months and really get to know exactly what does happen to the money. Money is very hard to follow. You've got to be on the ground to do so. You can't just ask people, what did you do with the money? But in my experience, I think what I've seen is several things. First of all, with so many microcredit programs on the ground in certain places, and Bangladesh has more than most, what we do see happening is that people will use the loan from one microcredit program to pay back a loan from another microcredit program and just sort of leverage their options by taking advantage of the fact that there's so many players in the field. Another thing we see the poor doing is what's called consumption smoothing, which is to say they'll take the lump sum, 20 dollars 30 $40, or $100, and they'll use it to deal with emergencies, to buy medicines for their children, to put a new roof on their shelter, to buy clothing, or even to buy what you and I might consider a sort of luxury good like a radio or a television set. The question then becomes, well, how do they pay the money back if that's what they're using it for? Well, again, we need a lot of research because poor people, are, despite their vulnerability and their poverty, they do live in social networks that are quite complicated and quite extensive. And I have seen a lot of poor people use those connections to make it possible to pay back their loans. So they'll go to friends and family. They may even go to money lenders 
to borrow money at a higher rate to pay back the microcredit program. There's lots of things that are done to pay back loans that do not represent an investment in a viable economic future. They represent instead a lot of strategies that will keep the borrower in good favor with the microcredit program. So it's a very complex matter, and the fact that the money comes back doesn't mean it was spent for economic development, and the fact that the money went out doesn't mean it went into investing into a business. Perhaps it's necessary to bolster the educational aspect of microlending so that poor people know how to use the financial tools that they're being equipped with? Sure, that would be a good thing, but the downside of that is that that's going to add to the cost of providing the service. And then we get back into the question of whether such a service could be sustainable. There are some microcredit operators out there, microfinance operators. In fact, I kind of prefer those, which offer more than just credit. I mean, the so-called Credit Plus programs are offering the kind of advice you're talking about. They're also offering social services, health services, health advice, and a host of other things. But those things are not sustainable financially, so one has to subsidize them. I don't see anything wrong with that, as long as people are willing to subsidize it. But let's just be clear that it would require a subsidy. So do you see any way to reform the micro-lending model we're using today to encourage investment instead of consumption? To me, the biggest set of lessons that we've all learned over the years is that in the end, we need to focus far more on savings and far less on credit. That is the sort of, in a nutshell, answer that I would give you. I think if we encourage the savings mobilization, work on more creative ways to get people to save, work on ways to make savings appear more safe to poor people. One of the reasons they might be wary of putting their money in the savings account is because they are aware that it could get lost, and they're not entirely trusting of the institution. They want to make sure their money's safe and that it's protected against inflation and that it's going to earn a little bit of interest. What this really means is that more and more micro-lending, microfinance organizations have to become bank-like, if not, in fact, banks. There are far too many NGOs in this field, and they're not operating as professionally as they ought to be. And because of bank laws in a great many countries, they don't have the right to mobilize savings, which is why they focus all their energies on credit. Okay, you're drawing a distinction there between the way NGOs work and the way that banks work. Can you elaborate on why there is such a disparity in the kind of results that the two institutions achieve? Well, this is an area that a lot of work is going into now, and banks are getting involved. And in fact, there's been some good learning by banks from the experience of a lot of NGOs. And the best NGOs are ones which are entirely microfinance-oriented. What we used to see was NGOs that were in the humanitarian sort of business getting involved in microfinance because it seemed like a, a cool thing to do. And they just didn't have the expertise to do it well. So I think um, the difference is the difference between a much more analytical, a much more professional approach, which is what is represented by banks, an approach that is regulated by the laws of the country that regulate banks. And so you get more attention paid to the analysis of loan use. You get more attention paid to how to reduce transaction costs and so forth. So I think the differences are, if I was to be kind of blunt about it, the difference between an amateurish approach and a more professional approach. 
The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.